Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 81. And if Israel would listen, would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are about to look at a very majestic and yet very convicting passage, and yet it's full of reminders that even in the midst of our folly, in the midst of our sin, in our rebellion, you are still the king of all and the one who searches hearts and knows our motives. And, and you are the one who sent forth Christ the Son, our prophet, priest, and king to bleed and to die and to rise and even to ascend for us, your people. And now, even as we are coming now to your word, we're reminded that your spirit uses the word to bring conviction. And yet you also say that that the spirit is a comforter. So, Lord, we, we thank you for these great and marvelous truths that you are not a, only a God who saves us. You are not only a God who, through the death of Christ, secures our eternal salvation But Lord, you are a God who provides for us in so many ways, and all of them are an undeserved grace. They are all an undeserved mercy. So Lord, as we look at the idolatry of Israel, maybe take pause, maybe examine ourselves in a 2 Corinthians 13, 5 way to see, Lord, if there is any unpleasing way that remains in us. And may we find our ultimate satisfaction and joy in the fount of everlasting life, the well and the spring of of life that is in Christ alone. So Lord, we thank you for your word. open, Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear. And help us to heed the word of God and to obey it. For the sake of Christ, for the good of our souls, and that we may sing truly, from our, the depths of our hearts, it is well with my soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 81. Psalm 81 says this. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the heart. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statue for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I received your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, why amamish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There will be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. 
And so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Now, according to one uh, recent survey, Americans do not hold the organized religion of the church in high regard. 52% said that, that the worship at home was a valid replacement for attending church. A majority did not even think that the pulpit ministry of the local church has authority for Christian living. 91% answered that the church does not have authority to validate professions of Christian faith. And yet all of these and more of these views are contrary to the plain reading of the word of God. And yet they reflect a tendency to think negatively, to think the worst thing about the church. One reason for this anti-church attitude is that formal churches themselves have often opposed true Christianity. When, when, for example, George Whitfield began preaching to massive crowds in 1737, at the beginning of what had been known to history as the Great Awakening, his chief opponents were church officials. One biographer writes, the, the parish churches generally at this date were sunk in nominal formal religion. And so opposition to Whitfield's preaching of the new birth and justification through faith alone in Christ alone, this biographer said, became so intense that churches of his own denomination were shut against him, and he was forced to preach in the open air Whitfield was. Well, an even more significant instance of the outward churches opposing God's work was the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus rebuked them, declaring in Matthew 23:13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This problem is seen at various times in the Old Testament. In fact, even when the Israelites gathered to offer worship to the Lord, they often did so with unfaithful hearts. In fact, Psalm 81, it shares this concern. It summons the people of God to celebrate the prescribed festivals, but it reminds them that, that worship is valid only when offered in a spirit of grateful faith. The psalmist does more, however, than rebuke false worship. He presents a God who is eager to bless those who, in, who turn to him sincerely, and whose heart laments the idolatry of his people. Psalm 81.13 says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And so in this way, not only does Psalm 81 emphasize the importance of church and its worship, but it urges the necessity of true faith and devotion and worship that pleases the Lord and is thereby blessed by him. And the, and the truth is, we are living in this day when, sadly, many Christians would rather go to you know, their co favorite coffee shop for a Bible study than they would gather under biblically qualified elders, male pastors and elders in a local church and fellowship with the people of God. I, I have even heard in my ministry in the local church with men, men tell me, 
I, I would rather enjoy the fellowship of God's people than enjoy the worship of the word. And yet, Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, we need the word and we need one another. They're not opposed to one another. We need them. And, and so we need a psalm like this, to especially in our individualized Western culture. And so what we're going to see as our first point in our study today is a biblical call to worship. Now, this psalm opens up with a fervent, musical, worshipful call in verses 1 through 2 when it says, Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. And it's evident from the summons that, that despite the ritually intense nature of the religion led by the Old Testament priests, their worship was to be participatory and even active in the joyful engagement of praising God. John Calvin writes, They were not to stand deaf and dumb at the tabernacle, but they were to cherish among themselves the unity of faith, to make an open profession of their piety, to endeavor to join with one accord in praising God, and in short, to continue steadfast in the sacred covenant by which God had adopted them to himself. Old Testament scholar Franz Dilschit points out that order is involved in this summons. Verse 1 calls on the congregation to shout and to sing. Verse 2 encourages the Levites who were set apart for choral singing and playing instruments. And even verse 3 summons the priest whose calling included blowing the shofar, the great ram horn that announced the presence of God. And so in addition to exercising their lungs, the gathered people were called to exercise their faith. And we see this in the summons in verse 1. The God of Jacob. Now, Jacob was the father of the nation with which God entered into covenant for salvation. You see, it was by means of the same covenant that his offspring were also the people of God. They were thus to worship God by believing his promises and by remembering the great saving works by which God had fulfilled his covenant purposes. And so Christian worship, likewise, is a covenant meeting of God with his people. We worship God by trusting the promises of the word. And we shout for joy to the God of Jacob by publicly professing what God has done in Christ by sending him, as in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And so worship is thus a covenant meeting in spiritual communion with the God who gives us strength. And in addition to involving active praise and faith in the covenant of God, biblical worship is animated by thanksgiving in the blessings of God as revealed in his word. And this is the point of Psalm 81, 5-7, which recounts what God did for Israel in the exodus from Egypt, when it says, He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulders of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. And in distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, multiple phases of the Exodus are here explained. Now, first came Joseph, as the Egyptian seems to have labeled the nation as a man hearing a language I had not known in verse 5. And some think that this refers to the Egyptian language, although others think that it refers to the voice of God speaking from Mount Sinai about Israel's deliverance. And yet there's no deliverance what this deliverance meant. In verse 6, he defines it saying, 
I relieved your shoulder of the burden, your hands were freed from the basket. And so this verse refers to Israel's redemption from her hard labor and slavery. In fact, verse 7, it speaks of the Exodus itself, including Israel's salvation from Egypt, God's voice speaking from the mountain, and the testing that took place during the first stages of the wilderness crossing. Now this catalog, it reveals God's sense of priorities in saving his people. And while the people tended to care less about their physical well-being, God was interested in building up and even strengthening their faith. These were things that Israel should have been grateful for, just as Christians today should be thankful for the many ways the Lord is at work in their life as the Holy Spirit works the grace of God more and more into our life, producing more of the fruits of the Spirit. And now in his ministry to his disciples, Jesus was always concerned for their faith. In fact, in Matthew 8, 26, he says, Oh, you of little faith. And when Jesus exclaimed, it was usually because of a strong or a growing faith. He once praised a centurion in Luke 7, 9, telling, saying this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. In fact, Psalm 81 summons Israel to its annual feast the point of which was to remember the saving works of God with thanks. We see this connection to the feast because of the language highlighting the lunar calendar and even the changing of moons that singled the feast. Psalm 81.3 says, Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on the feast day. Now, these three great feasts, they all looked back on the Exodus. Passover recounted the angel of death, passing over the homes covered by land's blood. Pentecost was called the Feast of the Weeks at the first summer harvest and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, which commemorated the Exodus sojourn in tents and even then celebrated the completed harvest in Leviticus 23, 1-44. Now, these feasts, they all pointed forward to the saving work of Christ. Passover anticipated the blood of Jesus' cross as the true Lamb of God. Pentecost looked forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And tabernacles anticipated the final ingathering of all of Christ's people at his return. And as the Israelites were to be thankful in remembering the Exodus sojourn from Egypt to the Promised Land, Christians have an even greater reason to worship with grateful praise to him. And considering how Christ's deliverance so greatly exceeds that of Israel, George Horn writes this, Let us remember that we have been eased of far heavier burdens, delivered from severer taskmasters, and freed from a baser drudgery, the intolerable load of sin, the cruelty of Satan, the vile service, and bitter bondage of corrupt desires. And before concluding the opening call of this psalm, we need to note that it presents worship not merely as a privilege, but as a duty, verse 4, when it says, For it is a statue of Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob, And so whatever inward state Christians may find themselves in today, we should look on gathered worship with the church as a sacred duty to which we are called. In fact, Psalm 71, it prayerfully calls us to prepare for worship, asking God to mold our hearts with the right attitude of joy, reverent faith, and thanksgiving in order that we might receive some measure of the praise that he so greatly deserves. Matthew Henry says this, Praising God is not only a good thing which we do well to do, but it is our indispensable duty, which we are obliged to do. It is at our peril that we neglect it. And in all religious exercises, we must have this warrant and this rule, this I do because God has commanded me. 
I, I got to ask the question here. Is your life ordered around uh, the Lord's day? Is your Monday through Saturday ordered around the Lord's day? Are you preparing for that day? Uh, are you keeping short accounts with the Lord? Are you continuing to walk with the Lord during the week? Or are you using your faith just as a badge of honor? Where you, where you just walk through the motions and you say, you know what, all is well with my soul, but not all really, truly is well. And maybe when you go to worship, you, you feel so icky and you and you want to repent. You, you desire repentance. You ask the Lord, you beg the Lord, Lord, please grant me the gift of repentance. But I must ask you, do you see the horror of your sin? Are you walking with the Lord? Are, are, you, are you walking in his statues? Are you reading his word? Are you studying his word? Do you have a love for the things of the Lord? I mean, a genuine hunger and thirst for the righteousness that is in Christ alone. Too many Christians treat this in a casual way. We think, you know what? I go to church on Sunday and that's enough for me if they go to church. For many Christians, it's even a preference. But when we look at it, uh, passages like Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the book of Hebrews was even written to a persecuted church, a church that's suffering, a church that, that was given a message about the sufficiency of Christ over all things. And yet, even in that context, in Hebrews 10, and in the book's context, I should say, in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we're told very clearly to not forsake the assembly of God's people. And so I ask you again, how is your life, as you you gather, <clears throat> excuse me, you gather together on the Lord's day, and then you scatter, you scatter from the, the local church into the various places where God has you, in your homes, in your vocations, Monday through Friday, and even Saturday sometimes. Do you see your vocation as a means by which God is using you in this world, not just to provide food and help to your family, but, but do you see it? Do you see it as a blessing to be used, to be salt and light? Or do, or do you only think that the pastor is the one doing the work to do the work of ministry? The pastor is to equip you. The elders are to care for you, but you go out and you, and everybody is to be an evangelist. We're all to do the work of ministry. This is an all-hands-on-deck thing. And the more that we can understand that, that worship is not just for the pastor, and it's not just for the worship leaders, that when we're worshiping, we are participating with the people of God, and we are joining with all the saints, the myriads and myriads of people gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And one day... Revelation 4 and 5 says we will be gathered together with that myriad of hosts in heaven before the Lamb, and we will worship Him forever and ever. And yet even now, our lives should be reflect this truth. If you're not satisfied with this reality, then you're not going to like what heaven is. Because heaven is where we will worship the Lord before His face forever and ever and live and honor and glorify him in our speech and our conduct and in our life we will be totally like him so if you're not satisfied with that now i have to ask you are you do you truly love the lord 
Have you truly come to a saving faith in Christ? Do you truly possess saving faith in Christ? Because my concern is, is, is if those who truly love the Lord will love his word. And they will love what his word says about the people of God. They, they will not just hate their sin and consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God, but they will have a love for the church because Jesus bled and died for the church to present her blameless. The, the church is not agent B or C or D. The, the, the church is instrument A, B, C, D, and E, and F, and G to Z. That it is God's primary instrument that he uses to carry forth his word into the world for the honor and glory of God. This is why podcasts could never replace the local church. They, they can be a great vehicle. They can be a great instrument to help you to grow. And praise the Lord. You know, we have so many podcasts here at Servants of Grace. But the heart behind them is to help you to get into the local church. To get there, to equip you, to serve the Lord wherever you are. And to order your life in a way that honors God Monday through Saturday. So that when you get to Sunday, you're, you're going to be ready to be a useful vessel to bless other people, to encourage them, to pray for them, uh, and so much more. And so how is your life today being ordered around the life of a local church? We're about to see as our second point in our study today that Israel is going to get a solemn rebuke for its idolatry. And now on the occasion of Psalm 81, God summoned the people not only for worship, but to also receive this solemn rebuke in verse 8 of our text, our chapter today, which says, Hear, O my people, why I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Here we're reminded what the, that the most important organ of our worship is our ears. That in order to worship God rightly with our mouths, our hands, our hearts, we must first listen to his word and faith. Calvin observes that the summons of verse 8 teaches us that true religious worship begins with obedience. And the particular teaching here concerned the great sin that was characteristic of Old Testament Israel, the sin of idolatry. Verse 9 says, There shall be no strange God among you, the Lord commanded. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. So this rebuke, it echoed the very first commandment given to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 23, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. That, that God has the first commandment in view is made even more certain by the quotation of its preamble in Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, as it says in Exodus 22. Now, in declaring himself as a true God of the Exodus, the Lord was saying that he is the God revealed in the Bible. He is the God who redeems his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which the Exodus prefigured. There is more multiplicity of gods, one for every person's preference, etc., and so, so on and so forth. And what this does is it rules out the idea that different religions are equally right. According to God speaking in the word, all others but him are false idols. There is only one true God, the saving God of scripture. And so we worship him alone, not only because of all that he has done, 
but also because this is the most basic commandment that he has given in his dealings with us. Now, the Israelites committed idolatry by actually bowing down to the idols of false gods and by participating in this debased ritual of pagan religions. Now, most people who commit idolatry today worship the false gods of secular humanism rather than the gods of wood and stone. The Puritan Thomas Watson, though, said this, and it's insightful and it's challenging. Some, some make a God a pleasure, he says, doing this when they love experiences more than God. He says, others make money their God. The covetous man worships the image of gold. Therefore, he is called an idoler. In Ephesians 5, 5, he makes the wedge of gold his hope. He makes his money his creator, redeemer, and comforter. And Watson says, another makes a God of his child by making one's offspring an object of praise and glory. Still others make a God of their belly, according to Philippians 3.19, seeking to expand their appetites. Watson concludes, the apostle John names the wicked man's trinity, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life in 1 John 2.16. Now, Watson wrote this in 17th century England showing that the idols of our age are endemic to fallen humanity. Secular humanism, it turns out, does not represent a new phase in human development. There truly is, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3, there's nothing new under the sun. And it is still, as Solomon said, vanity and grasping for the wind. And now these idolatries are seen not only in people, but also in our churches. When they deviate from God's word in order to gain wealth and popularity, acceptance, or even worldly power, any of these blessings, pleasure, money, honors, may be granted by God as a product of faithful worship and ministry. But apart from true faith in Christ, they are nothing more than idols, which our text abhors. Now, the tragedy of those who worship idols is that false gods are not only condemned by the Lord God, but they also fail to deliver satisfaction they promise. In contrast, God declares in verse 10 of our psalm today, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That is to say, God desires true worship not only for the honor of his own name, but also because he is the only fount of real true blessing. And thereby individuals and even churches that make it their first concern to obey God's word do not lose out on any real way. And when we open our mouths in grateful worship, exalting our only Lord, the Lord fills our mouth with both earthly and eternal blessings. God will not only be a debtor in the end to God will not be a debtor in the end to any of his people. Rather, by his grace, those who honor him as Savior and King and Lord will be filled with all the fullness from him, according to Ephesians 3.19. Now, faithful Christians may have had many troubles in this life, and they may even seem to lack worldly things. And yet, Paul declares in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Notice that. It's not my glory. It's not growing a huge platform. It's not having a huge influence. It's the glory and the honor of Christ. And we need to remember that in Philippians 4.2, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 13, he says that we, are, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we, can, we rejoice in the Lord because he is sufficient in and of himself. And we are to seek his honor and glorify him because he is utterly sufficient. Is that true of you and your worship? 
And, and worship is not just a matter of, you know, lifting our, our voices on Sunday. It's a matter of our life. It's a matter of our using of our, of our gifts, our talents, our money, our abilities, our talents. How are you doing at that today? Is your worship truly honoring God as, as a, and does it accord with his word? Well, our next point that we're going to consider is a fervent appeal for faith and salvation. And this final section of this psalm, it, it turns in a positive direction as the Lord appeals to his people to return in saving faith. Well, first, though, he puts his finger on Israel's chief problem here in verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. This statement marks a vital relationship between the problem and its cause and between the heart and the ear. The people did not listen because they would not submit. The issue was the rebellious, sinful nature, which must first be overcome if people are to hold fast to the Lord. Matthew Henry says, All the wickedness of the wicked world is owing to the willfulness of the wicked will. The reason why people are not religious is because they will not uh, be so. This willful rebellion is fundamentally expressed in a rejection of the word of God. That is to say, to be right with God, we must be willing to receive his word obediently. The, the Hebrew of Psalm 8111 is actually more blunt than the English translation. Not being willing to obey God's word, it says, literally from the Hebrew, Israel was not willing to me. And so the hard-heartedness of unbelievers is personal in its rejection of God. It involves personal offense to the Lord who makes us. And how then should we respond when we realize that our hearts are unruly before the Lord? What do we do when sinful desires have taken root or when we find ourselves having little interest in prayer or worship? The answer is that we must turn obediently to the word of God, seeking that power for godliness that comes through the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 states that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Psalm 19, 7-8 extols the blessed influence of the Bible when it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening its eyes. Now, what other resource has this kind of effect on our hearts and in our lives? And so when a Christian feels his or her heart turning away in sin, unbelief, fear, resentment, anxiety, and so on, the believer should follow the logic of Psalm 8111, making the heart willing by submitting it to God's word. Now, this doesn't mean we push down or push away our feelings, but, but rather we see them through the lens of the word of God. This is why the psalmist continues to tell us in other places, like Psalm 42, that we are to hope in the Lord. Because it's hope in the Lord in the midst of the tough things. When we're fearful, when we're, when we're resentful, when we're bitter, when we're struggling, when we're hurting. This is when we need the reminder, we need the instruction, and we need to submit to what God has said. And we need the reminders from other people to believe this word. This is why a text like Hebrews 13, 13 is, uh, 3.13, Hebrews 3.13, excuse me, is so important for us because we need to remind one another while today is today so that we do not harden our hearts. 
You see, if God's people will not take this remedy, then God has his own more painful solution. Psalm 81.12 says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This is often God's judgment on rebellious people or even nations. He gives us to the very sins and the idols that we insist on serving. J.J. Stewart Perrone refers to this as the greatest and even the most fearful of all God's punishments. It is terrible because it submits to the calamities of our own folly, and yet it is often needed to break our will so that God may remold it, remold it in true saving faith. Now, this giving over, it took a number of forms. In the book of Judges, each time God saved Israel, the people turned to false gods and sin. God's punishment took the form of foreign conquest and occupation, which produced such misery that the people eventually remembered to seek their God. And here the psalmist may have the northern kingdom particularly in mind, especially in light of the earlier reference to Joseph, whose tribes led the northern kingdom. After their rebellion from the house of David, God gave over the rebellious tribes by placing them under one foolish and ungodly leader after another. The idea of God's giving over to sin is seen in the New Testament also through Jesus' famous idea of the prodigal son. This faithless son demanded his share of his father's inheritance, which he squandered in riotous living in a distant land. The father in Jesus' parable sets a good, though painful, example for Christian parents when children throw themselves into sinful lifestyles. Many such parents tempted to protect their children from the effects of their sin, sometimes providing even ongoing funding for what they know will be most ungodly behaviors. The father of Jesus' parable did otherwise. He let the prodigal son go his way, even though his heart longed for the son he departed. And yet God had plans for the prodigal. Jesus taught us that when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need in Luke 15, 14. And so the son hired himself out to a farmer to feed his pigs, longing in his hunger to have even the pig's food to eat. This is, a, is the same thing our God did in this psalm. In Psalm 81, 12 says this, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. These were God's own people. And so this action was not merely a punishment, but the painful ministry that hardened unbelief in sin requires. According to the Apostle Paul, God gives not over not only people, but also whole societies. In Romans 1.21, Paul described cultural idolatry when people who knew better did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That statement so accurately today describes post-Christian America. People often ask whether we, or whether God will judge our nation. Well, according to Paul, God has already done so. He's given us over to the moral depravity that we have sought. In fact, Paul mentions perverse sexual desires and especially the spread of homosexual desire in practice in Romans 1, 24 and 27. When he says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The widespread societal championing of homosexuality, as is now happening in the once supposed Christian West, is so rare in history that we should expect it as a form of divine judgment. 
Paul confirms that a society that intentionally rejects the word of God for sinful pleasure can expect to be given over to the service of idolatry in this way. And yet, even in this great misery of of our depravity, there is good news. And that the grace of God endures for those who turn from their misery back to him in in faith alone in his name. In this light, how remarkable is the exclamation from the heart of the very God who has just spoken of giving Israel over to sin in verse 13 of this psalm. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Here is the heart of God for his people who turn away in sin and experience the chastisement that their restoration requires. It is this same heart that spoke with tears when Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem that had rejected him and forfeited salvation in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Well, I mentioned earlier the prodigal son of Jesus' parable who rebelled against his father and had suffered the consequence of his sin. That is a beloved parable because of the hope that it goes on to reveal. Eventually, the prodigal came to his senses and remembered his father, as God wants all prodigal sons and daughters to do in their misery. And thinking only to return as a slave, the son made the journey home. And Jesus continues in Luke 15, 20-24, saying this, But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. The father in the parable is none other than God himself, who who is graciously eager for his people to repent and be restored, that he pictured himself as running along the lane to meet his once wayward son. Luke 15.10 says this, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This same loving heart of God is to be heard in Psalm 81.13, which says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And as this parable indicates, restoration to the, to the Father brings not only a removal of divine judgment, but it also brings the Lord's rich blessings. Psalm 81 concludes in verses 14 through 16 saying, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. You see, the Lord had in mind military success and even material bounty as his loving gifts to the people restored by his grace. The promises reinforce the message given throughout the Old Testament, which is summarized by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. See, the Lord can do great things for an obedient people. When his people walk in the light of his countenance and maintain unsullied holiness, the joy and consolation which he yields them are beyond conception. To them, the joys of heaven have begun even upon earth. Now let's conclude by talking about what it means to turn and to be saved. Well, we might wonder, can it really be as simple as we're talking about here? Do we just turn to the Lord and walk in his ways and then enjoy his protection and blessing? Well, the answer that this psalm gives is an emphatic yes. The great problems of life is simple. Verse 11 says, My people did not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. 
The, the solution is equally simple. Verse 13 tells us, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. In 1850, young Charles Spurgeon was forced by a snowstorm to seek shelter in a small chapel where a worship service was beginning. The regular minister could not attend, so one of the members, Spurgeon later recalled him as a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, he says, went up to the pulpit to preach. Reading Isaiah 55, 22 as his text, he read an appeal similar to that of Psalm 81. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am a God, there is no other. And fixing his eyes on Spurgeon, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon admitted himself that it was true, and since he was in deep conviction for his sin, you look very miserable, the man said, and you will always be miserable, he said, looking him in the eye, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Looking at, lifting up his hands, he shouted at young Spurgeon, young man, look to Jesus Christ, look, 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 you have nothing to do but to look and to live, Spurgeon later recalled this event, saying, I saw at once the way of salvation. I have been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. Well, this psalm, it confirms this teaching. Turn to God, listen to his voice, walk in his ways, and salvation's blessings will fall upon you. Many today, they don't want to obey the word of God. They do not want to submit to it because they think that it is folly. We need to remember what the psalmist said very clearly. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, but nobody really thinks that there's no God. The problem is, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God has set eternity on our hearts. The problem is, is that we would rather worship what the Creator made than the Creator Himself. And so we will do whatever we can to worship. But the matter is, we will still worship. We, we worship at the altar of sports. We worship at the altar of our hobbies. We worship at the altar of, of our finances, of our jobs. But are we worshiping the Lord? Because all, all else is sinking sand. What is ultimate, what, what's going to last, is the honor and glory of God. All else is idolatry. That's what Israel was doing. This is what this text is exposing. Idolatry is finding meaning and value and worth and things outside of the Lord. And, and the sad history of Israel, the sad history of many of our lives is we do the same thing. We seek it in our jobs. We may even seek it in our marriages. We may even seek it in our ministries. Sadly. But do we honor the Lord with do we just honor the Lord merely with our lips and not with our hearts? That's a question. The truth is, we all do. We all must repent. We all have a great ongoing need of Christ. And this is what a psalm like this exposes. That we need to be confronted about our own sin, about our own lack of failure. And if you think that you've... <coughs> If you think that you've arrived, if you think that you've got this figured out, you don't. 
It's pride. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Proverbs 15, it makes it very clear that one of the things that the Lord hates is pride. God gives, but God gives grace. He gives mercy. He gives his undeserved favor. That's what grace is. We don't deserve this gift of grace, and yet God gives it to us. And we're living in a time when, we have to be honest, people resist this teaching of this very psalm. They would rather rip a psalm like this out of the Bible and out of God's word itself than hear what it has to say. And we need psalms like this. We need messages like this. Because we can be a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And we need the reminder. We need the encouragement. We need the instruction. We need to be confronted. And then we need to be comforted. You see, God gives his hard words. But he does so even motivated by love. Many people today, they hear a psalm like this and they they felt beat up and they feel condemned. And yet what we've seen very clearly in this psalm is God does not leave us stuck. Many people, they choose to be stuck because they refuse to submit to the word of God. They say, I don't have to obey God. I don't have to obey the word of God. I don't have to obey the text that God has given. It's all just a matter of my private opinions. But if there is no other way to be saved, and there's not, other than through the person and work of Christ, narrow is the gate, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. That means that all other ways are false. All other gods are false. And all other hopes are false. And so the only way to be saved, the only way to have hope, the only way to have an anchor to the soul is through Christ revealed in the word. And that's what makes this, a psalm like this, so important for us to hear. Because if you're pursuing a life outside of God, outside of his word, outside of the bounds (coughs) that the Lord has instituted, then you are dishonoring God. And you, if you're a Christian, you must repent. And even in even a text like Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says that God disciplines those whom he loves. It's because your, your fellowship with God is hindered by your sin. Your security remains as sure as it ever can be. But your fellowship with God is disrupted by your sin by your indwelling sin, by your refusal to repent and believe. This is why we have church discipline. It's not to be, it's not to beat the person up. It's to say, no, we take our sin so seriously because we take our savior so seriously. We take our king so seriously because, because if we allow sin in the camp, guess what's going to happen? It's going to infest the whole lot. So, so we engage in church discipline because we believe that sin is deadly serious in our churches and it causes such issues and such division. And yet even church discipline it has the same goal that we've seen here today. That is to restore the sinner to God and to restore the sinner to the church. And this is why the process is slow. 
why it's intentional, why it's purposeful. It's a walking alongside. It's the calling of the person to repent, to confess their need of the grace of God in Christ. Will you do that today? God, even right now, may may be calling you to repent of some habitual pattern of your life that has dominated your life, whether that be pornography, the pursuit of money, credit cards, your job, workaholism, on and on, anger, bitterness, resentment. The truth is, do you love that thing more than you love your Savior and King? God may even right now be trying to get your attention. And the question is, are you paying attention? And the question is, are you ready? Are you going to submit to his word? Jesus said this in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. There's no other way to obey his commandments than if you are a genuine child of God. He's given you his grace that's turned that's transferred you paul says in colossians 1 13 14 it's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the lord jesus so if that's happened you belong to him he is yours he owns you you are his slave and you are to consider yourself romans 6 11 says dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus and there's also good news, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I ask you, have, are you in Christ Jesus? You might profess to have faith in Christ, but do you possess Christ himself? Do you have a genuine love for Christ? A genuine desire for Christ? Do you have a genuine hatred for your sin? Do you desire to put it to death? Are you putting it to death moment by moment, day by day, even in this moment, as God by his spirit is highlighting that one area in your life that dishonors him? The problem is, is that Israel would not repent. And God continued to send reminder, instruction. This is you. This is the Lord. He, he pursues us in his, in his great, infinite unchanging everlasting love he calls us out this is what god desires our worship to honor him and it dishonors him when we live like Dietrich bonhoeffer said like the grace of god is cheap when it's such cost jesus his life in our place and for our sin And so when we talk about obedience, we're talking about it's because of Christ. It's because Jesus said in John 19, 30, it is finished. Do you believe Christ? Do you take him at his word? Have you taken him as your savior and king and Lord, your prophet, priest, and king? Have you put your hope and trust in Christ? Have you turned to repentance and faith? If so, you're a child of God, praise the Lord. But Are you putting your sin to death? Are you obeying him moment by moment and day by day? Have you counted the cost? I hope that you have. Because narrow is the gate and few find it, Jesus said in Matthew 7. And he also says there at the end of his Sermon on the Mount that many, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
I hope and I pray that none of you who listen to this podcast will hear those words. Because they are the most terrifying words. Instead, I pray you'll hear the words of Jesus who says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. I I long for that. I long for that day when the Lord will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. That's only because... That's only because by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. I am his and he is yours. And I pray that's true of you. And I pray that you would submit to the word of the Lord in every area of life. And if there's habitual patterns of disobedience and that dishonor the Lord, that you would genuinely repent, that you would see your selfishness, and your pride, and your arrogance, and that you would turn from it to the Lord who longs to restore you, longs to give you hope, longs to give you real meaning and value and purpose in his sight. Let's pray. Father, you are the giver of life, and yet in your your immeasurable wisdom and love, you pursue those who disobey and dishonor you and cheapen your grace. And you do it because you are a good God. And even in this text, we're reminded, as you pursue Israel, as you call Israel out, they are the apple of your eye. And yet you pursue them. You you pursue wayward sinners because you love them. You discipline us out of your love. So Lord, I pray that even now that you would that you would pursue those who are living in habitual patterns of sin that dishonor you. And that you would open eyes and ears to hear and that they would submit and they would obey and that they would live. They would look, as Spurgeon said, they would look on the righteousness of another. Look at the help and the hope that is found only in the Savior and King who bled and died and rose in our place and for our sin. Help us, Lord, where we have failed to honor you only with our lips in our thoughts, in our affections, in our hearts. Forgive us for the many ways in which we sin. We cast ourselves, as First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteous. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith, not by sight, in the promises of an everlasting, unchanging, loving, a holy, just, merciful, glorious King and the God of grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.